You're listening to the Spark Radio Network, Internet radio like you've never heard before. Innovation, creativity, and imagination are all said to begin with a spark. So fasten your seatbelt and take the ride of your life and listen for the spark. You are listening to KLRN Radio, where liberty and reason still reign. Hello there, this is Nat King Cole, wishing you all a happy and a Merry Christmas. The joy of living is in the giving. So let's give lots of toys for tots. Since 1947, the United States Marine Corps has been helping Santa fill his sleigh, making happier holidays for deserving children right in your community. Go to toysfortots.org and learn how you can make a difference. Most writers and radio show hosts know that to connect with your fans, you need to do more than just write books or record the latest podcasts. There are many different elements that go into forming an online platform, but there are also many hidden traps. To make matters worse, solid advice on how to survive the muddy waters is scarce. In the book Hidden Traps, I talk about some of the important issues of working with an online platform, highlighting traps that could put your physical or internet security at risk, or be harmful to your reputation. Are your social media posts just links with a few disjointed words making you look like someone who can't complete a sentence? Did your new website cost you more than you anticipated? Are you leaking your personal contact details across the web without even knowing it? Then you need Hidden Traps. Hidden Traps is now available in paperback and ebook from a variety of retailers, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo. Visit blackwolfpublications.com for more details. Everyone loves liberty. Our rights come from God, not the government. So why are you letting other people tell you what's best for your health care? Exercise your freedom with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a community of people who voluntarily share one another's medical costs. Liberty HealthShare is founded on the idea that most people truly want to help one another. Healthcare sharing allows members to do just that as a true community that supports one another in times of need. Liberty believes people should make decisions for themselves and their families. Members are able to take back the freedom to make their own decisions about their health care. Freedom from guilt or doubt about how your money is used. You have the freedom to direct your health care, not to be dictated to by bureaucrats. Stop letting others tell you what to do and join a community of like-minded people. Exercise your freedom. Join Liberty HealthShare and take back the control of your health care while helping those around you. Call Liberty at 855-58-LIBERTY. Again, that's 855-58-L-I-B-E-R-T-Y for more information. Or you can check them out at libertyhealthshare.org. Again, that's libertyhealthshare.org. You're listening to the Spark Radio Network, internet radio like you've never heard before. Innovation, creativity, and imagination are all said to begin with a spark. So fasten your seatbelt and take the ride of your life and listen for the spark. You are listening to KLRN Radio, where liberty and reason still reign. around us is an amazing place filled with beauty and with science. But let's face it, sometimes science can be so confusing that it takes a PhD to understand it. Well, you're in luck. I just happen to have a PhD. Come and take a seat. 
Perhaps I can explain the world around us in a way we all can understand. Welcome to Conversations in Science. I'm Dr. Judy L. Moore. Call me Doc. Well, if you were listening to all that, you'll realize it is a brand new show. Yes, this is Conversations in Science, and I am Dr. Judy L. Moore. No joke, I am a doctor. I really do have a PhD. My PhD is in astronomy, and I actually have an engineering degree as well. I specialize in astronomical instrumentation, so I have a bit of a variety of information and knowledge about science, and I love sharing my love of science with everybody else. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to a brand new show. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Rick Robinson and Jesse Sanders have been trying to convince me to run a show on science for quite some time. Well, I caved in. I finally caved. And of course, Jesse has decided to offer her services and help me run this show. Jesse, let them know you're here. Hi, Doc. How you doing? <laughs> yes. Jesse is helping me. She's producing the show for me so I don't have to learn a whole new system. Not that it's too complicated. I would still be there. But she's making sure that this actually happens. And not only that, she's also going to be on the other end of the line making sure that I make that the science is not too complicated. And if there's any questions that you have, she's probably going to be the one asking them. So let's get on with this. Right, today's show, what are we going to be talking about? Well, earlier last week, I believe it was, Jesse was running a show on Jesse's POV talking about some of the bits and pieces that were going on in Iran about the nuclear power and their heavy water situation. And of course, she's going, help, Judy, help me, I don't understand this. But I wasn't listening at the time. I was off playing mom. And, of course, I got a phone call later that day going, okay, so when are you going to be able to record this? When are we going to be able to get some information about what heavy water actually is? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So why don't we get started? What is heavy water? Well, water, regardless what it is, is going to have a hydrogen atom and, of course, an oxygen atom sitting in it. But heavy water is where we have deuterium. Now, before I get too carried away, let me just explain a couple of things first. Every single element that's on the periodic table will have a variety of different isotope forms that it comes in. Okay, let's bring this back down again. How many of you remember high school chemistry? Oh my gosh, we're all screaming going, ah, high school chemistry. But this is the only way we're going to be able to explain it. Atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. The number of protons in an atom will determine which element it is. The number of neutrons in the element will tell us what isotope are we dealing with. Electrons don't come into the calculation at all. So for hydrogen, Hydrogen has seven different types of isotopes. Hydrogen, for those of you who remember, only have one proton, and that's it. So all seven different isotopes only have the one proton. But when we start talking about things like deuterium, we have a proton and a neutron in its nucleus. 
Then we also have another beast known as tritium, which has a proton and two neutrons in the nucleus. And of course, the normal beast that we have, it just has the one proton, no neutron. And of course, the other ones, the ones that we have that are slightly heavier, will have more neutrons, up to six neutrons in the beast. Hydrogen, also known as the proteum, so this is just the one proton and that no neutron in the beast, and deuterium are not radioactive. But they are the standard forms of hydrogen that we actually see within our water. Tritium, on the other hand, is radioactive, but it has an incredibly long, uh, not an incredibly long half-life, but it is still has a reasonably length of half-life of being 12 years. Okay, half-life. Wait a minute, Doc. Half-life. Half-life. I got there. You don't have to remind me. So the half-life, to explain what this is, if you measure in a sample and count how many species you have in there, exactly half of those will decay into its various different states. And the time that it takes for half of those numbers to decay, that's your half-life. So what I'm saying is that for our tritium sample, if we count how many tritium atoms we have, exactly half of those will decay into some other beast within 12 years. So that's half-life. Hydrogen-4 through hydrogen-7 have got half-lives in the order of seconds. So they don't stick around very long at all. They're more of a transition beast, if you know what I mean. So that's hydrogen. Now, heavy water is the hydrogen atoms in the heavy water. So it's H2O, two hydrogens, one oxygen. The hydrogen atoms are deuterium. So they have one proton and one neutron, and that's what makes it heavy water. Then why, when I looked it up, Doc, was it written with a subscript 2 on the H and a, two on, a, 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 a superscript 2 on the H and a subscript 2 on the O? And ah. where do we find this heavy water? Does it occur in nature? Okay. We'll address those one at a time. So the H2 with the superscript and the, the subscript... The subscript in the formula means that we have two hydrogen atoms. The superscript means that the variant of hydrogen that we have has a weight of two, meaning one proton and one neutron. Sum them together, that's a weight of two. Protons and neutrons, by the way, weigh approximately the same amount. So hydrogen one, which is just the one proton, is half of the weight of a deuterium atom, which is the hydrogen 2. And if we went to, to tritium, so that's a hydrogen 3, that weighs three times the amount of a normal hydrogen atom, which is the proton. Yes, deuterium occurs in natural, it occurs in nature. In our water, our normal water, we will find naturally occurring heavy water molecules. So those are the molecules that are made with deuterium atoms, and we will find it in approximately 0.015% of all water molecules are naturally so of that. 
You mean the bottle of water on my desk has yeah. heavy water in it? Yes, it does. Will the it normal hurt? Water that you have. Will it hurt me? In the in the quantities that we find in water naturally, no, it's not going to hurt you. In fact, in your body, you normally have heavy water. Again, remember, it's only 0.015% that's sitting there. It's natural. It's nature. That's the way it goes. Now, if it's in a larger quantity, a very sufficient, the sort of quantity that they would be using in nuclear power generation, then yes, it's going to hurt you. But we don't want to be using those quantities. Those quantities are in the order of 99% of the water molecules in the water sample are of the heavy variant. So what they're doing in their refined process is they're splitting it and turning it around the other way. So instead of having a small amount of deuterium within the water, we've got a small amount of your normal hydrogen atoms. And that's the way it works. So now that we understand what an isotope is and what water is, let's go to the next part of the question and the next part of the discussion. Yeah, it was about their nuclear waste and what can they do with it? It's waste. Why is it, why is yeah. everybody going so cuckoo over trash? Okay. Let's start with what is the fuel source in the power plants? The normal fuel source within a nuclear power generation plant is uranium. Uranium is found naturally. And natural uranium has two main different types of isotopes within it. It has what we call uranium-235, and it has uranium-238. The only difference, and if you remember isotope, the only difference is the number of neutrons. They will have exactly the same number of protons, but it's the number of neutrons. So uranium-238 has three more neutrons than uranium-235. Does that mean That's it's heavier? And it is heavier, yes. Okay, I think I'm catching on. This is good. <laughs> right, so uranium-238 is what we call a fissionable material. What that means is that it will react through its normal radioactivity processes, and you can initiate its reactions by injecting into it a neutron but it has to be a highly energetic neutron. That neutron has to be moving at an incredibly fast rate. Uranium-235, on the other hand, is what we call a fissile material. And before you ask, yes, it is what is used in a nuclear bomb. So uranium-235 is the version of uranium that is what we use and the atomic weapons. For uranium-235 to react, and this is why it makes it fissile, is that it requires a low-energy neutron, not the high-energy one. So let me get this straight. 235 doesn't need as much of a party to get it started as 238 does. 238 needs a big energetic party before it decides to get off the couch and get in the game. Exactly. That is exactly it. Okay. So, carrying on, in natural uranium, we have only 
of uranium-235. The rest of it is all uranium-238. In the past, and they still do it now, you want to have an enriched uranium source of uranium-235 so you can use it and get that party started at a much lower rate of energy. Weapons-grade uranium has got 85% or greater of uranium-235. Power plant generation, if they're using what we call highly enriched uranium, then it has at least 20% of uranium-235. If it's low enriched, then it can be anywhere between 1% to 20%. If I remember rightly from the articles that I was reading, Iran is allowed to have uranium that is 3.75% uranium-235. So that's still enriched, but it's a low enriched source. Okay. Right. So what's the deal with the waste? Okay. We're coming to this now. Now remember we said party started. Okay, so it's a low energy, low energy to get the party started. This is where the water, heavy water, comes in. The heavy water is slowing down a neutron to make it readily active for the uranium-235. If it's going too fast, it's not going to react with the uranium-235. However, we are unable to actually get the electrons naturally up to that speed that are needed for the uranium-23. Right. So, to get that party started, we need that low-energy neutron. We are unable to get the high-energy neutron to the fast enough speed without some sort of other process happening. So, what we do is we use that low-energy neutron to get the uranium-235 going, which will eject a a high-energy neutron as part of its fission process. Before I get carried away again, fission is where we take an atom and we divide it up into smaller ones. Fusion, on the other hand, is where we take multiple atoms and we stick them together and we fuse them into a larger one. So let me get this right. <clears throat> Fusion is where you're putting the puzzle, your, your jigsaw puzzle, together and fission is where you pick up the completed puzzle and crumble it back into the box and all the pieces separate. Yes, that is exactly it. All right, so would fusion take, take more time? Fusion is highly energetic. It produces a lot of energy, and it, but it takes a lot of energy to get it started. So that's why we don't have fusion reactors at the moment. And it's also why we don't have fusion weapons. We don't really want fusion weapons. Please don't go there. Everything that we do at the moment is all fission. So it's a division into smaller atoms that we've got. That's what we're doing. So the uranium-235 reaction, when it starts, it goes into two smaller atoms, but it also ejects a couple of neutrons. And those neutrons are high energy, and they react with the uranium-238. And part of their process is they turn into plutonium-239. Wait a minute. Plutonium-239? No wonder everybody's freaking out over this trash. 
Exactly. Plutonium-239, for those of you who don't know, is this variant of plutonium that is used in nuclear weapons. It is highly fissile, meaning it doesn't take a lot of energy to get it started. Not only that, it's incredibly explosive. It doesn't take anywhere near the amount of energy or mass to get it going. All right, wait a minute. You said one of the uraniums, I think you said 235, was also fissile. And now you're telling me this plutonium stuff is also fissile. Does it take more uranium to make something go boom? Or does it take more of this plutonium to make something go boom? Okay, right. If we take a look at the historic bombs from what we dropped it on in Japan in World War II, Fat Man, which was the one that dropped on Nagasaki, was a plutonium bomb. It had within it 6.2 kilograms or 14 pounds of fissile material and it would have been plutonium-239 that they would have used. Its blast yield was 21 kilotons. So that's a decent bomb. That's a big boom. That's a big, big boom. The one that was dropped on Hiroshima, Little Boy, was uranium-235. Uranium, the amount of material that was there was 64 kilograms or 140 pounds. So you're talking 10 times the amount of material that was there. And its yield that it did was only 15 kilotons of energy. And that was it. So you're telling me plutonium-239 is what the bomb makers want. And that's what this nuclear power plant over in Iran is making. That's what we're all um, that's what all heavy water nuclear power generators, that's one of the byproducts is plutonium. Okay, so can they just take this trash out of their reactor and shove it into a bomb? Or do they have to do something else with it? They will have to do something else with it. They will have to refine it. But it can be done. In the 1970s, India proved that it can be done. Ouch! <laughs> They, in the 1970s, India created a bomb called Smiling Buddha, and they t got their f fissile material from the waste and the waste products from a heavy water reactor. It took them some time, and it wasn't straight away, but they were still able to get sufficient amount for critical mass. Now, critical mass, before I get carried away, is Basically, it's a minimum amount of material that's needed for the nuclear reaction to go boom. If you have less than that critical mass, it won't go boom. You will still have a nuclear reaction and you will still create power, but it won't explode and totally destroy everything under the sun. So let me see if I got this straight in terms of bombs. You have to have enough of it in one spot to get what we think of as a nuclear weapon, your typical nuclear weapon. But a smaller amount could make what all the terrorism experts are always calling a dirty bomb. It still spreads radiation, but it doesn't level everything. Yes, that is the reality of the situation. 
ick. Now let's come back to heavy. Let's come back to heavy water. The heavy water that's been used in these reactors will actually become radioactive itself. Now remember, I said before deuterium, which is the the variant of the hydrogen atom that's used in heavy water is not radioactive. So heavy water inherently is not radioactive, but once it's gone through the process, what will happen is it will absorb neutrons and some of those deuterium atoms will become tritium atoms. So in other words, they are one proton and two neutrons. That is radioactive. All right, all right. Tritium. Before you lose me, the heavy water that's in my water bottle on my desk, that isn't the radioactive kind. No. Okay. Okay. So every time I drink a bottle of water, I'm not drinking radiation here. No, it you're has, not. It has to go through this nuclear reactor before it gets radioactive. It has to absorb the extra neutrons for it to become that radioactive variant. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Doc. Back to what you were saying. <laughs> so... If we look at tritium, tritium is one of the components that is used in, fis in fission when you're looking at a fission deuterium reaction, which is the easiest one to get started, but it's also the, one of the hardest ones to control. Deuter and tritium is also used in what we call a boosted fissile weapon. So it makes it just that much more explosive, just that much more kaboom. And it's not a nice thing to be looking at. Whether they are able to extract enough tritium out of the spent heavy water from these heavy water reactors, that remains to be seen. There is much more efficient ways of creating tritium than these heavy water reactors and using heavy water and extracting the tritium that way. But we still have this risk that we have Iran stockpiling plutonium, and of course, a source of tritium as well. So, I don't know if that makes us feel good. Okay, so let me get this straight. We know Iran has the pan, because they're launching missiles for random stuff. They're not quite as bad as North Korea, but they launch the occasional missile. Alright, so, so they've got the pan, and they've got the flower in the form of the plutonium 239 they can get from their waste, even if they've got to tinker with it a little bit. They've got to run it through the, the flour mill again just to make it right. And they may even have the seasoning in the form of tritium. So do they have the whole recipe? Or is it going to take them a while to put all these pieces together, we think? I can't answer that. I really don't know if they have the whole recipe or not. They would probably have at least one person who has the knowledge. Ouch. But exactly how close they are. I can't answer that. I really I, don't know. I don't think anybody actually does unless you live in Iran, and that's a closely guarded secret. Trust me, the whole world wants to know how close they are to this recipe. <laughs> this is one cake we don't want to see baked. Yeah, but they've got the ingredients at least. And I have to admit, it does make it a bit scary. Am I personally concerned by all this? Well, I live in New Zealand, which is probably as far south and as far away from nuclear power generation and nuclear weapons you can get. Lucky. New Zealand, <laughs> New 
New Zealand is termed what we call nuclear free, and which is quite ironic because I always have fun reminding people that New Zealand is not actually nuclear free. When we talk about being nuclear free, it just means that we have no nuclear power generation and we do not allow anything that has nuclear power generation or nuclear weapons on board within our waters. So U.S. naval ships, when they do come to New Zealand, and they have occasionally come this way, they have to stay out in international waters unless they are prepared to allow an inspector onto their boats to verify that they are not nuclear-powered vessels. I don't see that happening within U.S. Navy ships, but you never know. It might happen one day. I can't think of a single U.S. Navy ship that doesn't have some form of nuclear something on it. I assume if they just had the x-ray machine and it was a diesel-powered ship, it would be okay. Exactly. We do have x-rays within New Zealand, and we have other forms of radiation as well. We use what we call gamma radiation, which gamma radiation is just one of the various different variants that you can have of radiation. And we use that to irradiate our food and prepare it for export overseas. It, it is a requirement of a lot of different countries that food becomes irradiated to get rid of any of the bacteria that might be lingering on the source, on the food, on the surfaces. That doesn't turn your water into your. It doesn't turn your food into a radioactive food. All you're doing is you're killing the bugs that are there. Okay, so that so we're not New Zealand lamb I ate, ate last week wasn't radioactive. No, it was not radioactive, but it would have been irradiated just to get rid of some of those excess bugs that shouldn't have been there. Well, they can get rid of That's the bugs. All. I'm okay with that. As long as you guys aren't making the Incredible Hulk over there. No. And dare I say it, they, they irradiate the food in the States as well as a variety of other countries as well. So most of us are eating food that has gone through the gamma radiation process for preparation and international shipping. Okay, okay. So it's pretty much most of the food everyday people, unless you go all organic or grow your own, are eating has been irradiated. Yes. So, so that makes us feel it makes us feel okay from that perspective. And our life expectancies have actually dramatically improved since we've started irradiating our food. So something has to be working. Well, so in in that case, the gamma stuff is good. When used in the right way, yes, it right. can be good. Right. I mean, but the gamma stuff has improved life expectancy and it kills nasty bugs. Yes, it does kill nasty bugs. <laughs> All right. All right. I can deal with gamma. But this plutonium-239 stuff, that's spooky. Yeah, that is a bit spooky. And that's okay. We, we will carry on. <laughs> All right. So, the question I've got now for you, Jesse, have I answered the questions about what heavy water is and why people are a little bit, oh no, about Iran having such a stockpile of its waste and its heavy water? Have I answered that question? I think you've gotten to most of the important parts, yeah. I mean... Okay, they've got the tritium, So, but even without the tritium, they could still make a plutonium-239 bomb, it just wouldn't be as big of a boom as it would with the tritium. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. So 
It's the amount of nuclear waste we should be freaking out about. Not the heavy water. Okay. Definitely not the heavy water. The amount of waste is definitely something to be freaking out about. All right, because no offense, Doc, I don't trust Iran. Not one tiny bit. They've proven themselves to be cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> uh, if you say so. I'll reserve judgment. Eh, so. They're cuckoo. Right. So unless you have any more questions about this particular topic, we might as well bring this particular episode of Conversations in Science to a close. Well, that brings us to an end of another Conversations in Science. If you have any questions about science and about some of the world around us, feel free to drop me a line. I'm on Twitter, and you can find me at Judy L. Moore, or you can look me up on Facebook, Judy L. Moore, or you can drop me a line on my personal website, JudyLmore.com. I think you're seeing the pattern here. Then, of course, if you are interested in some of the other projects I do, which is the writing and editing, feel free to check me out on blackwolfeditorial.com. But then, of course, don't forget, if you are wanting more information about the science, you can also contact us at the station with the email of science at klrnradio.com. Then, of course, there's my cohort that keeps going through and popping up. You mean me, Doc? Well, for anybody who wants to track me down... You can find me on Twitter at Jesse's POV. And you can also drop me a line at the station at Jesse's POV at KLRNRadio.com. Bye, guys. Bye.